The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Our Line Starts with Patrick Sharp and Keith Jones. I'm Catherine Tappan. Much to look forward to with our discussions today. And let's tell you what's ahead on the show. The latest on Jim Montgomery's firing in Dallas. Commissioner Gary Bettman unveils a plan to address abusive behavior in the NHL. Pierre Maguire chats with Sabres head coach Ralph Kruger. Looking forward to that one. And as 2020 quickly approaches, we begin to unveil our all-decade team. You guys have put your thinking caps on for that one, I know. Yes, I'm thinking a lot about that one. <laughs> we can't wait to hear who they are. Let's start with the news of the day and the news that just won't go away. Another head coach is fired today. The Dallas Stars fired Jim Montgomery this morning due to what the team's general manager says was unprofessional conduct. Here's Jim Nill. Upon collecting all the information and executing an internal investigation, including speaking with ownership, management, and general counsel, it was determined that there was a material act of unprofessionalism contrary to the values and standards held by the Dallas Stars organization. It is very clear this cannot be tolerated, and therefore we have relieved Jim Montgomery of his duties immediately. As I said, I, I'm not going to discuss the act. Unfortunately, I can't, uh, and, and that's where I stand on that. Why can't you discuss the act? That uh, it's out of respect for for everyone involved. Uh, it, it was, as I mentioned, per my statement, it was uh, we we decided it was unprofessional. A decision had to be made, and that is our, that's our statement. I found out this weekend, and. Uh, the event happened a few days before that, and that, that's all I can say. Uh, we, we started the investigation on Sunday once we gathered all the information. As I said, it was uh, determined as a material act of unprofessionalism. unprofessionalism. That's what happened. So certainly a major distraction for the Dallas Stars players as they arrived at the rink today for their game tonight against the New Jersey Devils. And it's uh, obviously a big breaking news story coming out of Dallas, Jonesy. Uh, what is your response to this? Well, from the player's perspective, it's very difficult day because mm -hmm. you're coming to the rink thinking you're getting ready for a normal game day skate. It was supposed to be an optional skate, but after all the news happened, Rick Bonus was named the new head coach, and moving from assistant to head coach, he decided it'd be best to get everybody on the ice and skate everybody and kind of come together in the rink as a team and try to move past this as quickly as possible. The lack of details obviously leaves us in, in a position where we can't really make a comment on what happened to Jim Montgomery, but we can comment on the Dallas Stars and their players. This is a this is a lo big loss to them. They've played very well this year under Jim Montgomery. They were very good under him last year, so there's definitely adjustments that need to take place, and it's an uncomfortable day for the players losing the head coach, a person that they had a lot of trust in and wanted to play for, and now he's gone for whatever actions uh, took place by him. It just seemed like that players in this team organization had things going in the right direction, too, after that slow start to the season. How many head coaches have come through Dallas 
in the last three or four years. It seemed like Jim Montgomery was the guy. The players were responding. Teams going in the right direction. Everybody had high expectations for this Dallas Stars team. And here comes another round of adversity. So uh, I don't know. I've never been in a situation where my coach was let go day of a game. Uh, they play tonight, and it's going to be an interesting uh, game to tune into. I want to see how these players respond. Rick Bonus, I've never met him personally, but just being in the league for the many years that I have, he's been a legend in the National Hockey League, been behind the bench of a, a half dozen teams throughout my career. I always say hi. Uh, he's got a great respect uh, reputation in the league. I mm -hmm. look forward to seeing what he can do behind the bench. But, yeah, tough day for the players and the stars. And the uncertainty and the questions that the players are going to be asked by everybody, yeah. including family members, right. friends. I mean, you're going to be on the phone all day. They're getting ready to play a game. And at the same time, there's so much uncertainty as to what happened. So everyone's going to be pushing and prodding those guys for information. Uh, so it's a very difficult and challenging time for the players to get mm -hmm. set and get focused on playing a game. The nice thing about playing hockey is it's your place to escape and come together with your teammates, and I think ultimately that's what the Dallas Stars players will do. But there's a lot swirling around this, and the, the players have a lot to manage right now. Yeah, a lot to manage, and you look at the leadership on this team, and, I mean, Jim Montgomery was the one that called out his two superstars at the beginning of the season, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, to get them going, and there was a drastic turnaround with the team. They've been playing very well uh, after that turning point, really, from their head coach. But... Is that the core leadership group that's going to get them over the hump of what's happening right now and all the distractions you mentioned, Jones? I mean, is there enough substance to this leadership group to get them through it? Ultimately, it comes down to the players. Winning and losing is how your team performs. Coaches certainly have an influence on that, but there's enough good coaches in that Dallas Stars organization that they'll be able to look to the leadership of those, of those head coaches, previous head coaches before, John Stevens being one of them. I know you played for Sharpie. And Rick Bonus has been around, as Sharpie was talking about, the game forever. Mm -hmm. uh, Todd Nelson also was a head coach in, in Edmonton and has had a ton of experience in coaching. So I don't think that will be an issue. I think the team is solid enough, and I think they do have enough leadership that they'll be able to you know, continue to play as well as they have and try to make some noise when the playoffs roll around. And time will tell. I mean, who knows what's going to happen the next week, 10 days, maybe two weeks with the Dallas Stars as far as wins and losses go. But I do believe that this roster... Uh, is built to win, built to win in the playoffs. So I'm excited to get to April. I know we're going down there for January 1. That's going to mm -hmm. be a big game against the Nashville Predators. Uh, all eyes on the Dallas Stars right now. Yeah. So he becomes the fourth head coach to get fired this season. Uh, of course, four very different situations. I'm not lumping them all together. But you look at two of the previous situations with Mike Babcock and also with Bill Peters resigning from Calgary. Are we starting to see that more of these stories are going to be coming out? Are the, are the floodgates opening now, the zero tolerance, uh, you know, one mistake and that's it? Are we going to see yeah, more of this? Yeah, and based on what we're going to talk in a little bit with, you know, Gary Bettman mm -hmm. at the, uh, the meetings with the owners and the, the presidents of the hockey clubs, and general managers, board of governors, uh, it's obviously a major issue going forward. So they could happen. I mean, I can't tell, sit here and tell you I'd be shocked if it did mm -hmm. because I, I've been shocked for the last two weeks coming in here to, you know, to get ready to do some hockey and talk about the stuff we love to talk about, and it's turned into different conversations. So I, I, I would not be shocked if more things came out. It's without question there is... Uh, a lot more discussion going on about mm -hmm. things, and then we'll just have 
have to see where it goes from there. But I'm hopeful that it doesn't that it doesn't continue to happen. Yeah, me too. Can we talk about hockey? Yeah. Or we <laughs> we'll nice. get to hockey stuff, in a minute. Right? It does seem like there is, though, this little black cloud, as Jonesy mentioned, over the last uh, two weeks. And, and the commissioner has addressed that. Today, news comes on the heels of a new four-year point plan that was outlined by Commissioner Gary Bettman on Monday. It was intended to address abusive behavior in the NHL. Here's what the commissioner outlined. We don't like surprises. Uh, the Bill Peters situation was a complete surprise. Going forward, our clubs are on notice that if they become aware of an incident of conduct involving NHL personnel on or off the ice that is clearly inappropriate, unlawful, or demonstrably abusive, or that may violate league policies, we at the league office, Bill Daly or me, must be immediately advised there will be zero tolerance for any failure to notify us. And in the event of such failure, the club and the individuals involved can expect severe discipline. In order to expedite a change in culture and make clear the expectations we have for the conduct of coaches and other personnel, we will formulate a mandatory annual program on counseling, consciousness raising, education and training on diversity and inclusion. The program will be required for all head coaches, minor league coaches under NHL contract, uh, assistant coaches, general managers, and assistant general managers. We will focus the programming on trainings and other exercises and initiatives to ensure respectful locker rooms, training facilities, games, and all other hockey-related activities, and teach to ensure bystander intervention techniques, anti-harassment, anti-hazing, non-retaliation, and anti-bullying best practices. Inappropriate conduct engaged in by club personnel will be disciplined either by the team, the league, or both. While discipline as always must be on a case-by-case basis, it is my intention that it must be severe and appropriate and designed to remedy the situation and ensure that the conduct does not occur again. We will create a platform, perhaps a hotline, where instances of inappropriate conduct connected to the NHL can be reported either anonymously or for attribution for us to follow up. It can be any team personnel, such as a teammate, trainer, uh, or even the player himself. In this regard, we understand the critical importance that no one is retaliated against for raising a concern or participating in an investigation, again, either anonymously or for attribution, and I guarantee we will take all reports seriously and follow up. Commissioner Gary Bettman addressing the four-point plan now for the NHL going forward. Uh, they've always, the NHL has always been on the forefront of uh, correcting any kind of issue that has happened or is imminent going to happen, or as we mentioned, more stories that are going to come out after this. Uh, what do you make of this four-point plan that he has unveiled? Uh, obviously necessary, and Gary Bettman is extremely organized and you know can speak in ways that are far and above uh, most people. And his leadership qualities have been outstanding throughout his entire time as the commissioner of the National Hockey League. So you know he's going to be set and organized in the way that he's going to deal with things from now on. I like the fact that he said, we don't like to be surprised. So they're getting out in front of this now and dealing with it now. And there's going to be a set of standards that every National Hockey League coach is going to have to follow. It's going to be clearly defined. 
It's going to be about education. It's going to be about, you know, studying and, and learning about different ways to become a better coach without having to go to the different things that can get you in trouble. So they're going to have guidelines that are going to be clear and that they're going to be able to follow. And there's going to be no more gray area. There's nowhere to go. Like you have to, this is the way it's going to be. And if it's not going to be that way, then you're not going to coach in the National Hockey League. So I think it's really important. And I think it's great that he's put it out there for everyone to see. It's not just a private discussion amongst the Board of Governors. It's for the entire National Hockey League and their fans and players to look at and recognize that it's an extremely important issue to everybody involved in the National Hockey League. And therefore, I think it's going to end up being a very positive change once everything is done. Well said, Jonesy. Yeah, it sounds like they're trying to make the hockey workplace, the environment, a very safe and comfortable place. That's how it should be for players, anybody working within an organization. And uh, I applaud the league for taking those changes. Yeah, when you think about the changes that you're going to have to, I mean, we're in a, a world of constant yep. changing, and uh, they they are doing their best to try and stay ahead of this. And uh, you mentioned the leadership of Gary Bettman. I mean, he's a very, very smart, intelligent man who has done a great job, as you mentioned, leading the league. And you can imagine going forward, they're not happy with any of this news that's no. been coming out. <clears throat> and, the, and the thing you have to really consider is you have, at any given time, I think 800 players mm-hmm. in the National Hockey League, and every player is a different individual. And how one player handles something from a head coach can be entirely different than the way another player looks at that same situation. So education goes a long way in helping someone understand the other side of the argument. So I think it's really important that you get the information out there, you teach, and you have coaches that aren't only teaching players, but they're learning themselves as they go. And in so many cases, a lot of the coaches are former players. And they may have grown up under an entirely different, um, under entirely different circumstances. And some of the coaching methods that worked for them 30 years ago aren't going to work anymore based upon changes in our society, mm-hmm. which have been positive changes. And I think that's pretty much what this is all about. It's interesting that you put it that way also as far as coaches uh, managing each player individually. I mean, to me, all the good coaches, that's what they do anyway. They find the strengths and weaknesses of every player in the organization, and they put those guys in a spot to succeed and help the team. So uh, huge steps taken by the league, and exciting to see what comes yeah. next. Interesting that the Jim Montgomery situation did not fall under that four-point plan uh, that Gary Bettman unveiled. So we'll wait and see uh, what more details emerge out of that situation in Dallas, and we'll look forward to seeing the stars under Rick Bonus and see what he can do now uh, taking over the reins there in Dallas. Speaking of coaching, more positive coaching stories to talk about. The Buffalo Sabres, they're in a playoff position under their new head coach, Ralph Kruger, and Pierre Maguire had a chance to sit down with him for a conversation. What a pleasure to be joined by Ralph Kruger. He's like James Bond. You know, one day he'll be in Switzerland, one day he'll be in Russia, one day he'll be in England, and one day he'll be in Buffalo, New York. Now you're in Buffalo. Ralph, great to see you. Good to see you, Pierre. Nice to to be here. Um, Quick question for you. You have one of the most unique stories about, from the coaching perspective in the NHL. But you said something last year before you took the job. You were offered the job and you came and hung around in the city of Buffalo just for a day by yourself. What were you trying to find out? Well, it was a unique situation for me, having been a 25-year head coach and then stepping into another sports world like the English Premier League and to really be sure that it wasn't just only my heart that was going to pull me back into hockey. I needed to be certain that there was growth here, 
that the environment I was stepping into at this age was going to be one where I didn't want to be a part of a rebuild. I wanted to be a part of a team surging into that next level mm -hmm. of development. So there were so many different things. But above all, I promised my wife I would take her somewhere where it would be fun to live. And uh, so I did that first. I did the wife thing, make sure that Glenda was uh, going to be happy. And I ended up walking through some communities here and found some owner-operator spots really uh, that first weekend where I, I saw... A lot of Europe here in Buffalo, I think it's a sleeper city. People don't see the, the culture and the intellect, actually, of the, of the city itself, which I was able to pick up on the weekend. And the sports fanaticism here, we all know about. That was the, the most important piece, probably, of them all. But I'm really pleased to be here in Buffalo on multiple fronts now. So you talked about Europe. Yeah. Uh, my first meetings were you were over in Europe. Germany and Switzerland. You were a player in Germany. You coach in Switzerland. You helped build the Swiss program, yeah. let's be honest. So what led you to Europe? I know where yeah. you're from. I know yeah. St. John's Ravens Court where you went to prep school. Yeah. And yeah. I know about Steinbeck, Manitoba, yeah. where you grew up. But what led you to Europe? Well, I think number one, I, 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 did, I did play with Kelly Kissio my last year of junior in Calgary and had a pretty good season. But I was pretty realistic about my chances making the NHL at that time. And I just didn't have the foot speed, but I loved the game of hockey so much. And having a German passport, it was a path that so many Canadians go on, is to Europe, play on national teams there. I was able to experience some world championships and had a 13-year-old career, 13-year uh, career where I was able to experience hockey at the level I was capable of playing at the time. So just my love for the game actually pulled me over to Europe and then uh, I, I planned to try the coaching thing for one year, and 25 years later, it became my passion, my life, and my everything professionally. Your vision for the Swiss program in particular, I think, is phenomenal. Can yeah. you talk about how you came about developing players and developing yeah. the Swiss system? So if you look at the Swiss players today, one of the things I, I, I have is a complete blend of the European and Canadian game. So everything I've ever coached has both elements in it. So it helps me here in Buffalo where we have 10 Europeans. Mm -hmm. But then at that time, it was unique in that Switzerland was an all-out offensive, no defense kind of skilled country. And we brought grit into that offense. We brought grit, which doesn't mean running over bodies. And that's the game today, actually, that's being played in the National Hockey League. It's a different kind of grit today. It's the courage to go to the front of the net. It's the courage to... To, you know, to, to, to get inside uh, when you have the puck, but also defensively to, to, to have that body position and to pressure the puck. You don't have to finish the hits as much anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did with the Swiss program is we really changed the way the Swiss mm -hmm. team played hockey and uh, competed. And I was able to spend three Olympic cycles with that group. And I'm you know, so pleased that there's a whole team of Swiss players over here now the door was knocked down by Mark Schreit. Mm -hmm. He's the one that had to battle oh, as yeah. a D, you know, to become a defenseman took him three years. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, it was, it was that. And I still today have a very global game in my mind when I'm coaching, probably largely influenced by the Scandic, Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Finland, and Canadian hockey kind of all blended together. Can you tell me about what your feeling was when in 06 in Torino, Switzerland pulled up the major upset against Canada? It was the day that Switzerland changed its direction completely. So all the kids playing in the NHL today were between 8 and 12 years of age watching us beat Canada 2 nothing 
on top two Paul Paul Di Pietro goals, a Canadian guy yeah, from Sudbury, Ontario, who, who, <laughs> who actually helped to change the the mentality of the program. And it, it was it was a absolutely size. It was a seismic shift in the way the Swiss people believed in their potential and what was going to happen. And that game was over and above any game that I was able to be a part of. Uh, what it changed was was the the belief that we could play against top countries in the world and compete with them and also go to the NHL because Mark still wasn't really a fixed player over mm -hmm. here, Mark Strite. But it was uh, a game I will never forget and, uh, you know, forever will be, will be a special one in my memory. What does a Nico Heischer going number one yeah. overall mean to a program like the Swiss program? Oh, it just gives it so much confidence. And Switzerland has invested so much in youth hockey. Every professional team there has to have, from top to bottom, a professionally led program of development and that's one thing that's put Switzerland on the map and so many international coaches are in there working in the trenches I profited from all the work that was done in the youth stages but they have professional coaches for under 16 under 12 these are fully mm -hmm. paid professionals that are in there and that's why it's not by chance or by luck that Switzerland is developing these players it's yeah. uh, it's it's their program right through the ranks well, and you were the godfather and congratulations because yeah. that's a nice major, be a it's another major feather you. in your cap so this is an interesting one. You're the head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah. Things don't work out, and you leave hockey. Yeah. You leave hockey to go to football. Not yeah. American football. <laughs> no. Soccer. Yeah. Ralph, you've got to help me out here. Yeah. How, how did that help happen? Yeah. Well, the beauty, beauty, Pierre, is that you know, all of us working in sports, are, are, we have leadership experiences. And because of I had two little kids when I started coaching, and it was quite frightening, actually, to be a head coach and knowing the the dangers of the profession and how longevity is not your friend. And so I threw myself into studying leadership and teams in 93, 94, at the beginning of my coaching career. And I just never stopped. And it, it took me on to some really good ex safaris, actually, with different companies, with different experiences, all the way to the World Economic Forum, where I was able to become part of a panel for, for five years. And and so it was that growth, actually, that opened the door to, to, to soccer slash football. It was, um, first of all, the pain of uh, leaving the Edmonton program where I felt we were on the cusp. Mm -hmm. But the respect I received from Steve Eiserman and Mike Babcock to hire me 48 hours for Team Canada mm -hmm. going to Saatchi. But that gave me a time to think. And in that time came this leadership opportunity in the Premier League, which was, for me, I thought... What a way to grow and learn where you're actually then not involved in the front, but you can still work with the players on the off-field kind of mm -hmm. uh, spaces. And so for five and a half years, I was able to grow and learn so much there, and I'm hoping I'm bringing it in here in Buffalo uh, as a new package and a new viewpoint. But it happened by chance because of my, my excitement of studying leadership and how to treat people right. I, I just... I'm obsessed with creating cultures and environments where people are treated properly and in the right way and still finding the buttons to push to hold people accountable for. And that's a tough, mm -hmm. it's a tough line that we, that we are wandering back and forth upon to get players and the people you lead to do that. But I'm still in search for that, that, um, that process. How much has your style changed as a coach from when you started yes. to where you are right now? A lot. A lot. I... I was much more erratic and emotional, and I'm able, 
in good and bad times to keep the picture small. I used to always think it was important to speak about end results and about where we're going to be in three to five years. And I've learned as I get older, I'm 60 now, that that will take care of itself if you really are able to spend most of your minutes in the present. Mm -hmm. That yes, we need to know where we're going. The direction should be clear. We need to know what happened and look at it quickly, process it, take the lessons with. But more than anything, we should spend most of our life here. And, uh, and that's what we're doing in Edmonton right now. And that's what I've gotten much, much, much better at. And maybe it's because of age. I know my lifeline's getting shorter. But uh, above all, I'm a person that's really able to try to find excellence in the moment, whatever that moment is, and uh, be focused and concentrated on that is the biggest change mm -hmm. and biggest shift for me as a coach where I would maybe come in and speak about if, if, and when, and there, and first place, and all that stuff. And now it's more about... Let's be, let's be excellent right now. If it's a day off, let's have an excellent day off. And if it's a game day, let's be bang on for the game and so on. And it seems to be, um, it seems that the players here in Buffalo have embraced that attitude. I know the pain of being fired as a coach in the yeah. NHL. I know how I dealt with my pain. How did yeah. you deal with yours when you got fired in Edmonton? Well, first of all, just like I said, people reaching out, like phone calls immediately, Tom Rennie, uh, Mike Babcock I already mentioned, you know, Hitchcock and so on and so forth. There were a lot of coaches that reached out. That was good. Uh, but f I needed to get actively refocused on what I was going to do now and find another path as quickly as possible because the only person you hurt if you get bitter and negative and critical is yourself. That's the only person that actually gets hurt. And I luckily my instincts and all the leadership work that I was doing I was going into companies telling them no matter what you have to find a positive process no matter what if you just had the worst day of your life if your company just got uh, 20 percent stock reduction or whatever you've got to find a positive process which doesn't mean big smile on your face I didn't have a smile on my face mm -hmm. I didn't sleep for about you know six seven weeks mm -hmm. very well and I woke up you know with all kinds of things going on in my mind because I was all in in Edmonton, because I loved those players so much and because I believed in what we were doing and it was gone, mm -hmm. I had to accept that. So yes, there was pain, but in my waking hours, I was driven towards solutions. I was driven towards a new process and that's what we have to do when we're, when we're smacked in the face. We have to get ourselves back on that track of finding solutions, finding new dreams and goals to reach for. And it takes a while when you're so deep in a dream or goal that you're working on it took a while, and Team Canada gave me that, that opportunity. But the hockey school I went through as a coach in that time, you know, with Claude Julian, Lindy Ruff, Hitchcock, Babcock, all of us changing all information with each other, everything on the table with the Eisermans and Hollands and, uh, you know, the leaders that were around mm -hmm. us at the time and spending a year in that program uh, deepened. Yeah. So look at, look at the opportunity I got, Pierre. I mean, Wow. And then the Premier League. Uh, I would not want to change that with anything. I, I have no craving to go back, but wow, what an experience that was. And that was built really on my attitude. If it would have been negative and I would have been throwing all kinds of darts at the people in Edmonton that maybe made the decisions, that would have just stalled my evolution. So let's go to a tell the truth <laughs> now. You just won a huge game in yeah, Edmonton. Yeah. What was a plane line ride back? Yeah. What was it like? Well, first of all, the players gave me the game puck, which they don't give the coach very often. Yeah. I, I, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, the guys uh, understood the value of the game, even though I didn't really speak about it. Uh, they, were, they, they were pleased. And, yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a revenge person, so I didn't have that kind of feeling, but I felt 
really proud to be the Buffalo Sabres coach that whole day in Edmonton after what happened. And um, on the way back on the plane, you know, there was, there was some, some fun and jubilation. But, you know, the way it is in the NHL, we move on quickly. And I think it's, uh, it's in a nice, quiet way that I was able to enjoy that, that victory and back to work here today. What's the best way to describe your relationship with the Pagula family, the owners of the Buffalo Sabres? So when I spent that weekend here in May, first of all, the ice was just breaking. And uh, I'm good. I'm good. This is like Manitoba. I'm good. I I grew up in Winnipeg, so uh, Steinbach slash Winnipeg. So I I know all about cold. So (laughs) people think this is cold. They have no idea. No idea. And, uh, you know, I've spent most of my time in Switzerland at 5,000 feet. So so I'm not afraid of the cold. So that didn't scare me at all. What I embraced, I've mentioned one thing here already in the podcast, and that's that I really care about being in environments where people are treated properly. Mm-hmm. And it seems more fitting than ever right now in the environment that we're in. And I, when I met and, and have brainstormed with Jason Botterill over the years, mm-hmm. it was always the feeling that culture meant more to him than anything. And when I met Terry and Kim, and we spent, uh, you know, we were planning to spend an hour together, it ended up being four. It was just so natural. Uh, we spoke about everything. Um, on top of the hockey and I could just feel their love number one for the city and for the people and the fans getting what they deserve here the dedication they've shown for the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres is tremendous mm-hmm. but they're just very real I mean I, every interaction I've had with them since then and I had to deal with a lot of billionaires in my time in the Premier League <laughs> and a lot of owners in the Premier League and they're just very natural, very real, and come out of the heart. And this was an environment where, I mean, all the options that I had fell away that weekend. Uh, I could have returned to the Premier League. I could have come into another role, possibly in the NHL. But uh, they, that was the final push over the line that I wanted to be the Buffalo Sabres head coach and work in an environment where culture mattered above all. Your eloquence is so apparent as you talk, which is really unique for a hockey coach, I will tell you. Um, but I watch how you message with your players during the game, and you talked about how you've calmed down yeah, since yeah. you first started, yes. and I'm seeing the results in Jack Eichel's play in yeah. particular. Yeah. How did you address Jack Eichel when you took over the job here? Well, it was excellent because uh, our first meeting was in Slovakia, and uh, we planned to have some drinks together, and we ended up you know, with his, with his uh, partner, Jack and I, we ended up spending four hours together and I would say we maybe spoke about hockey for 20 minutes or 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's just been organic. We, we don't have uh, hours and hours of conversations. It's just a very natural exchange of body language and eye contact mm-hmm. and, and some meetings here and there, of course. But above all, I felt in him the competitor that he is and the, the hunger he has to lead a team to victory and in the right way and his individual statistics or what he does in that process are less important for him than the team so he puts team first and I really felt that in him right away and since since that first meeting it's just been easy I have to say really easy and he's an amazing athlete an amazing hockey player Mm -hmm. but also a person he's embracing the game without the puck I believe 
he will be the most complete player in the National Hockey League when he's done. I, his, his tracking speed and his mm-hmm. game without the puck, his, uh, his, his willingness to pressure and get it back is as good as any of the top players in the league. So with that offensive skill set comes this, this other person, and he, he is um, putting that into action, and what an example he is. Works as hard as anybody in practice or on or off the ice. Mm-hmm. So the relationship is very easy, very natural, very organic, and you know we, we look forward to every day together. Ralph, am I overstating it by saying he's a legitimate MVP candidate this year? Oh, for sure. There's no question that he, uh, in all aspects, will be in that circle. And what, as a coach, you're always looking to manage people. Yes. What's made the Buffalo Sabres better this year in terms of your management of the players? So a lot of excellent <clears throat> work's been done here over the last few years. I, I've been involved in the rebuild processes when when players are 18 19 20 and mm-hmm. you know we've got some core guys that are in their fifth season in the league now and we we still have Rasmus that we're working with how exciting will his future be Rasmus Dahlin yeah Rasmus Dahlin because we have three Rasmus <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly but uh you know I I like where where the group is at right now and I I really really am excited with uh with, with the phase that we're in here overall. I don't want to put too much pressure yeah, on you. No. We've been friends for a long time, so yeah. this is my last one for you. Yeah, no. Complete this sentence. The Buffalo yeah. Sabres will make the playoffs if... We continue to keep the picture small and continue to get better every day. So that's what we're working on every day. Improvement, small picture, and uh, keep the white noise outside of our locker room, and we're going to be fine. Merry Christmas, yeah. Ralph. Thanks. Thank Merry you. Christmas Thank also you. to everybody Thank behind thanks, the camera. Ralph. Okay, Thank thanks. All right, our thanks to Pierre. A great conversation there with Ralph Kruger. And, you know, you look at the Buffalo Sabres. I remember when they hired Ralph Kruger and reading the press release and thinking a chairman of the Premier League is now going to come in and be a head coach in the National Hockey League. Like, how does that even work? Um, and then getting the opportunity to meet him at the NHL draft this year in Vancouver and chatting with him for a conversation on our broadcast was I was so impressed. Uh, he seemed like he had the what it was going to take to get a team to where they need to be, which is exactly what he's doing right now with this Buffalo Sabres team who we've seen dip a little bit but they're in a playoff position right now Jonesy what's he doing that's so great it shows you how creative he is Mm -hmm. because he started in hockey when we knew him and with the Edmonton Oilers and then Sharpie was involved with the Olympic team the Canadian Olympic team that you were involved with so he had been obviously introduced to the world of hockey the fact that he left and went over to the Premier League was shocking and, and remarkable at the same time so he's obviously taken whatever he picked up over there and continued to develop his coaching style and now he's taken on a Sabres team that had been floundering for the last decade. And the challenge was to bring everyone together on that Sabres roster and make them play up to their potential. It's a much deeper team than it's ever been before, in fairness to some of the coaches that uh, were there previously. Uh, There's no doubt that he has more weapons to play with, and he has a much more mature captain in Jack Eichel, which obviously is a great thing. He's an elite player that's playing at an elite level right now. But he's had to bring a lot of different guys together. When you have depth, you have options, but you also have decisions. And I think Ralph Kruger's done a really good job of putting people in the right places in that Sabres lineup. It sounds to me as if he's a great communicator to his players in Buffalo. At least he was... In 2014 in Sochi, he was an advisor. He was on the coaching staff in the Olympic Games, and his kind of role on that team was to scout the opponent, give us an update on some of these players that play for Norway or Austria. And you might say, well, yeah, there's not a whole lot of Norwegians and Austrians playing in the National Hockey League today, but Ralph Kruger spent a ton of time in Europe, 
learning the European player personalities. And I feel like he's bringing that to the Buffalo Sabres and he's dealing with all different kinds of players, communicating in a good way. I don't think Buffalo's as good as they were in October. And I don't think they're as bad as they were in November. They're probably somewhere in between. And the fact that Jack Eichel, the team's franchise player, is playing at a high level uh, that he has been all season long is good news for Ralph Kruger. I like the way he's coaching that team and I think they're going to be in the fight all year long. Yeah, do we think they're going to be in the playoffs? Tough division. Yeah, no, and, no and, doubt. Uh, and Toronto's starting to get their game going, mm-hmm. so it becomes that much more difficult. Florida under Joel Quenville is a very good team and a much improved team, and the Bruins have been the best team uh, in that division from the drop of the hat. So it's a big-time big, big time yeah. challenge within that division, but uh, Buffalo is capable of getting there this year, and I think they're going to be right in it to the last minute. Well, teams are left for dead. Weeks ago, all of a sudden, a team like the Minnesota Wild rattles off 11 or 12 games with points. Uh, we rode off the St. Louis Blues last year, and we all know how that story turned out. So I think they got a tough road to make the playoffs, the Buffalo Sabres, but I'm not going to sit here and say they're not making it. <laughs> We've seen stranger things happen, right? Like mm-hmm. you mentioned the Blues. All right, well, let's take a look at the uh, the finale of this podcast today, guys, and it's exciting because we're going to take a look at the all-decade team looking at 2010 through 2019, and it's based on a combination of stats, awards, Stanley Cups, and overall impact on the NHL over the past decade. So we're going to do this in two parts. You guys today are going to draft six defensemen and two goalies. Next week, we're going to have Anson and JR uh, put together their four lines of forwards. Yeah. Yep. Anson and JR are going to coach this team with That's that? That's right. Yep. I don't know well, if Well, that I would be interesting. You mentioned Joel Quenville, but with the Florida Panthers, he may be the coach of the oh, decade. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Didn't you think about you, the you coaches yet. Yeah. I forgot about that. All right. Let's start with Jonesy. Give us uh, your top defenseman of the decade. It's Duncan Keith, a guy that Sharpie knows well, and from covering every one of his Stanley Cup championships, he was, in my eyes, the most important player on the ice frequently throughout every uh, Stanley Cup championship that he won. He was on the ice more than anybody else. Uh, He showed great speed, great composure, great influence on the game. And in my eyes, he is an easy choice to put on the all-decade team. Yeah, me too. He's on the top pair. And everything that you just said about him can probably apply to Drew Doughty as well. Uh, Duncan Keith once told me in the playoffs that I asked him why he stays on the ice so long. He's taken well over a minute shifts, and he says, if something's going to happen in this game, I want to be responsible for it, good or bad. And to me, uh, that's the type of team that you want in the locker room. So Duncan Keith's a no-brainer. Drew Doughty played against him during the decade so much. L.A. with all the success that they had, Drew Doughty was front and center with that, not just with the National Hockey League. He did it internationally, Team Canada. He was always an impact player. He made the original, the 2010 team, I think, is a... He's a really young player, kind of blew some people away with how well he handled that situation. And then again, in 2014, he was arguably the best player. So those are my top two defensemen, Doughty and Keith. But we're going to make a lot of mistakes on this. And oh, yeah. A yeah. few yeah. people. But those were a given, those two. Those, yeah. I, don't, I don't think anyone can argue with those. We both sent those in, and we both had both guys as our top two picks. And I, I agree, Doughty influenced every game that he was involved in as well and did it with a smile on yeah, his face. Yeah, stirs the pot a little bit yeah, while he does it, right? He's got a bit of everything, too. He's got to be a pain in the neck to play against a player like Drew Doughty because he seems to just not care what anybody else thinks of him. He's going to go ruffle feathers a little bit out there. He's a hockey player yeah. through and through. I remember sitting in warm-ups, skating around the ice next to Doughty, said hi to him. We were going to the Olympic Games in a week from the game that we played. And I was up on the Hosa Taves line playing against Drew Doughty. First shift of the game, he takes me out with a huge, like, hip check along the boards. I'm thinking, what's wrong with this guy? We're going to be teammates we in a week. we got to get the gold in a week. But that's Drew Doughty for you. He's a uh, hard-nosed competitor, pretty good player.
That's awesome. All right, so Duncan Keith and Drew Daddy are your top pairing. Who's your next D pairing? Uh, this is a unique player. It's Eric Carlson, and he put up massive numbers throughout the decade, kind of revolutionized the position. And whenever you were filling out a hockey pool and you're picking your defenseman and it was relying on points, Eric Carlson was the no-brainer pick, much like Crosby and Ovechkin would, would be for scorers offensively. Carlson was the guy that you took right away. And he did things that we didn't expect defensemen to be able to do or could do, and he went out there and did them on a nightly basis. Whether his team was good or not in Ottawa, they had different teams. Some were very good and some weren't so good, mm -hmm. but every night Eric Carlson was a great player. I love what you said about revolutionizing the position a little bit, didn't you? Like now, all of a sudden now every team's drafting these maybe undersized, skilled defensemen. They want offense from the back end. Eric Carlson this past decade was kind of one of those players that did that for years, the Norris Trophy would go to a well-rounded defenseman, someone that was solid in their own zone, plus-minus was always a big factor. Uh, Eric Carlson won those awards uh, by scoring goals and putting up points and helping his teammates. Because of that, I'm going to stay along those lines and add a partner to his defensive pair, a guy that's withstood the decade, who's adapted to a lot of different changes in the game, is Zdeno Chara of the Boston Bruins. Boston withstood multiple decades. <laughs> yeah, he's been around a long time, but a guy at that size, he's adapted to the speed of the game. Uh, the long reach certainly helps. Um, his leadership, it's talked about all the time, and that's noticeable from the outside looking in. I don't know much about the Boston Bruins, never played there, haven't been in that locker room, but you can tell that there's a certain vibe with the Boston Bruins, and I think Chara's got a lot to do with it. Uh, I don't even know how old he is now. I know he's in his 40s. 42. 42, and he's still getting three, it done. Three Stanley Cup appearances. Yeah. Of course, won one the Cup one. in 2011. You guys stole it away from him in, in, in 2013. Don't make him mad. Don't bring that up. <laughs> he was good at the start of the decade. He's good at the end of the decade. He's uh, good enough for my top four. And he set the bar so high mm -hmm. for an individual in the way that you Work not ethics. only perform, but how you act and how hard you work. And uh, he just continued to find different ways to improve, not only as a player, but as a person, then pass that on to other people. So that's the one thing that has always stood out to me about Chara is his ability to make everybody feel like they're mm -hmm. a part of it. And I think that's a big reason why the Bruins have been so successful throughout the decade. Players like Char and, of course, some help from Bergeron along the way. But those guys have really done a great job in passing along leadership qualities that will serve the Bruins well uh, long after the time that they've moved on. Yeah. Classy individual, too, Zidane Char. Anybody that's ever had the opportunity to be around him uh, always looks you in the eye, always addresses you by name. Uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful person to be around, but a tremendous leader as well as the captain of that franchise for so many years. So you've got Carlson and Chara. Who's the next D-pairing, the third D-pairing? For me, it's going to be Victor Hedman. And again, so much of that has to do with his ability to control the way the game is being played. Uh, that when the puck is on his stick, it's very difficult to get away. And when he moves it, it's going to someone normally on his team. He was a fabulous skater and continues to be. He's still one of the fastest guys in the National Hockey League. And he had the offensive capabilities to pick up some big points along the way as well. Always in the conversation for the Norris Trophy, and deservedly so. Uh, ended up being there at the end of the year. A couple of times or at least mm -hmm. once, but there's there's no question that his abilities and what he has done for the Tampa Bay Lightning over the last decade uh, go a long way in allowing me to think that he would be that type of player that should be on the list of the top defensemen of the decade. When you look at that second pair with Chara and Eric Carlson, if you kind of merge that player 
it's kind of like a Victor Hedman, isn't he? He's got the size, yeah, the you're physicality. Right. He can skate up and down the ice. He jumps in offensively. He's excellent on the power play. I agree with you that Hedman needs to be on that all-decade team. And I'm going to add another one I'm probably going to get beat up for just because I'm going to the Chicago Blackhawks again. But they were the team of the decade, in my opinion. And Brent Seabrook's got to be on this list. Um, forget about all that he brings to the ice. He's the vocal leader. Uh, he's big presence in that locker room in Chicago. He's been doing it since 2005. Uh, I got to get him on there because he also shows up time and time again in the playoffs. He was on the 2010 team, 2013, his leadership came through. We remember him putting mm-hmm. his arm around Jonathan Taves in the penalty box. And then 2015, the Hawks win the Stanley Cup, basically playing four defensemen. And he was one of those guys. So uh, Brent Seabrook did enough this past decade to make that team for I, me. I don't think you're going to get much kickback on that, actually. I, I, I know the last few years have, have not been great for Seabrook. They have not been Seabrook-like just because age and miles have caught up to him because he played so physically and gave every ounce of what he had to allow the Blackhawks the opportunity to win those Cups. I think you have to applaud him for the type of career he had. And that style of defenseman, he didn't just knock people over and defend. He picked up huge points, power play goals, momentum-changing goals, and was a big reason why the Blackhawks were successful. So that's that's... It seems like a difficult argument, but it shouldn't be because he did a lot yeah, the from, resume from that is there. position. It is. It it's hard to see is. what's happening to him but from a public criticism standpoint it's, because yeah. this guy gave it all and brought three Stanley, helped bring three Stanley Cups to that city. But now it's, you know, trade him, get rid of him. He's too old. He's too this. He's too that, which they're saying about, you know, Taves and Kane and all the rest of the. And Tappet and Jones. That's too. right. Yeah. Get rid of him. Yeah. Hey, now. But also, Never about Melbourne. <laughs> the reason You're why. You're the ageless wonder. <laughs> maybe we take a little heat on some of those picks is because of all the great players that we left off. That's true. You know, Shea Weber comes to mind. He's a force to play against, still performing well. I know injuries beat him up through the decade. Uh, Chris Letang mm-hmm. has a bunch of Stanley Cups and awards to, to put in his back pocket as well. Uh, there's guys all across the league. Roman Yossi of the Nashville Predators is and coming Brent, into his own. and Brent Burns. Brent yeah. Burns. Yeah, who also kind of revolutionized that position. Right. But I, I guess we could make the argument he started as a forward when the decade <laughs> yeah. began. Maybe so. JR will have him up front. Uh, yeah, yeah. He'll be one of the, exactly. he might be. Ooh, good teaser, Sharpie. I like it. Okay, so we've got the six <laughs> defensemen rounded out. Now we have to pick two goaltenders. Who do you have, Jonesy? The, the, for me, this was easy. As difficult as you, when you look at the list of goaltenders that you could obviously choose, Jonathan Quick stood out to me. Uh, I think he accomplished so much with his athletic ability and gave the Kings the opportunity to win two Stanley Cups. Without Jonathan Quick in his prime, I don't think the L.A. Kings were winning. And if you remember, the Kings barely squeaked into the playoffs on a couple of times that they went on long runs, and Quick had to make spectacular saves. He also had to be an emotional leader for the team as well. How I can I can remember frequently looking at him and his reactions in the net when he was upset with the way the guys were playing in front of him, going up and down the bench and getting everybody going that way. So he really pushed the envelope. And also, in a day and age where big matters in net, he's not a big guy, and he still found a way to get it done by playing his position with great athleticism. And it was a great show to watch him in his prime. So Jonathan Quick would be my choice as the best goaltender of the decade. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you. He looks like a human joystick sometimes, like someone's controlling video games. He's going (laughs) side to side. He's fronting the shot. He was unbelievable for a long time. 
Uh, this one's tough for me, the goaltending position, because I often get my own feelings in it on who I couldn't score goals on or who I did have success with. For the decade, you can't argue with what Henrik Lundqvist did with the New York Rangers. I know the team uh, trophies aren't quite there, but from start to finish, he put up incredible numbers. And really being the goaltender for the New York Rangers and carrying it the way that, that Hank did is pretty special. He's got to be uh, discussed. Uh, Roberto Luongo. Did a lot with those yeah. Vancouver Canucks, had some good teams, and I know he put up a lot of wins. Marc-Andre Fleury did it with two different teams, Vegas and Pittsburgh, but i got to go with my goaltender, Corey Crawford. I uh, came in and was our starter in 2011, so the start of the decade, our team was not very good in 2011 and 12. We got to the playoffs both years because of Crow. Uh, two Stanley Cups as a starting goaltender. I know the focus wasn't really on him a lot. There was too many other great players to take the headlines away, but I saw this guy come through in the clutch time and time again. So Corey Crawford's on my, my all-decade team. And the focus of the opposition was often on Crawford, mm-hmm. trying to find ways to beat them. I'm talking about his glove his hand glove back side, in the yeah, day. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then he found ways to get it done as well. Yeah, yeah Crawford turned into an outstanding goaltender. Yeah. And Lundqvist is, would be a great choice as well. I, I would agree with that. Marc-Andre Fleury. Yeah, Fleury's a guy that... Carey I, Price. Yeah, Price. You could argue that Price is the best goaltender for the decade, but he just didn't get as many huge wins right. as some of the other guys that we're talking about, including Stanley Cups, and I think that obviously weighs a lot into sure. the decisions that we're making. The tipping point. <laughs> yeah, and fl- you would pick Flurry had he been the starting goaltender when Pittsburgh was winning their other cups. I mean, he, he was he was there, but the first one he won wasn't in the decade. So mm-hmm. the fact that Matt Murray came in and kind of stole the net from him uh, doesn't uh, isn't as strong of an, an opinion to have on Mark Andre Flurry because of that. But he's been a phenomenal goaltender, mm-hmm. almost won a Stanley Cup with an expansion team in Vegas in their first year in existence. All right, so let's recap uh, the all-decade defensemen. Duncan Keith and Drew Doughty, Zidane Chara, Eric Carlson, Victor Hedman, and Brent Seabrook. And your all-decade goalies, Jonathan Quick and Corey Crawford. We'll look forward to hearing from JR and Anson and get the forwards. But I can tell you this, I wouldn't want to play against any of these lineups. Good mix. That's a good mix there. Some good sides. I don't think anybody's beating any of those guys for any. It'll be a low-scoring game with those guys (laughs) on the ice. I like it. All right. Well, that's it for another edition of Our Line Starts. New episodes come your way every Wednesday. You can subscribe for automatic downloads wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us this time. We'll look forward to seeing you next week.